In the Pocket, a show where BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, creatives, artists, and culturists come together and talk about their inspirations, share their narrative, and explore culture. And you are listening to In the Pocket with your host, Flo Edwards, and our guest today, Mr. Bob Green, a sports journalist of 36 years and a local black historian. My name is Bob Green. Uh, I'm a eighth generation Mainer. Uh, my family's been in Cumberland County since the uh, 1700s. And uh, I'm a retired journalist. And since retiring, I have upped my, uh, my hobby to being almost a vocation and doing uh, genealogical history of, of black folks in Maine. It seems pretty extensive, the genealogy that you've done. Um, you contributed to several works that I'm aware of. Yes, I have. My, as I said, my family's been here a long time. And uh, there was just a new book just came out called George T. Ruby, which is uh, my first cousin, five times removed, for those who know about genealogy. <laughs> and uh, in case you're wondering, he died in 1840, uh, 1882. So, it's, you know, he's been a while, but uh, he, was a state senator in Texas during Reconstruction. But he graduated from Portland High School here, just like I did. And like I did, he left afterwards to go somewhere. He ended up going to, basically to Haiti as a foreign correspondent. Strange that we would both be in the same business. Uh, and uh, I ended up going to a couple of schools, winding up at the University of Kansas, where I majored in journalism and then spent my life uh, as a journalist. 36 years with uh, the AP. The last, the last place I was at was okay. 36 years. <laughs> Actually, uh, I, I guess you could say I almost it was closer to 56 because I worked for several black newspapers out in the Midwest, uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Kansas City, yeah. before working for a daily newspaper in Leavenworth, Kansas, as sports editor, and then I joined the Associated Press while I was in, in Kansas City, and that was when the 36 years started. <laughs> right. What are the names of some of those uh, black newspapers you worked for? I started with the Hoosier Herald, and then I worked for another paper very briefly, and I can't remember, Indianapolis Voice, and that was very briefly. And then I moved to Kansas City and worked for the Kansas City Call. Uh, I was able to get a job uh, later on with uh, the Leavenworth Times, which was a daily, a six, six day a week newspaper, and worked for them for almost two years before I joined the Associated Press. How did you get involved in sports, sports journalism? <laughs> when 
when I was, I heard about the job at the Leavenworth Times. There actually were three openings. They were looking for a photographer. They were looking for a, just a reporter, a news reporter. And they were looking for a sports editor, a one-man sports department. And I applied for all three. And they needed a sports editor more than they needed either the photographer or the reporter, so I got into sports. Uh, I had at the time four children and a wife, and, and we I needed a job to put food on the table. Uh, How So was one of your first uh, sports journalism gigs, was it, um, I want to say it was like the Fabulous Eight, that it was like the first tennis pro tennis the way we think of it now no. but now that came several years later actually uh, when i was in i started with the ap in in uh, kansas city and after three years transferred to milwaukee and then later i worked with uh, the associated press transferred me to washington dc to portland maine and to new york where i was in sports but while I was in Milwaukee, uh, a group of guys playing tennis came to town, and so I went out and covered it. And it turned out to be uh, the handsome mate and the very beginning of professional tennis. So we're talking 1969. And then after that, uh, before I left to go to, to uh, Washington, D.C., the women came to town, uh, the Virginia Slims tour, and it was won by Billie Jean King, and, and we became friends and have continued to this day our friendship. That's beautiful. Sorry, I was just smiling because the Virginia Slims tour, like I just can't imagine a cigarette company today uh, promoting a sports team, so it's, or a sports. Right, way. or, yeah. or, athletes taking money from the cigarette companies. But you know, one thing about uh, Philip Morris, which owned Virginia Slim's brand, and, and they were, Virginia Slim's was a cigarette that was being targeted toward women. Uh, one of the things about it is they were willing to sponsor women's tennis when nobody else would. And so consequently they they took them up on it and sponsored them for several years. And in a large way, although the women's sport has grown much bigger and a lot more money, uh, there are a lot of things that I'm grateful for the Virginia Slims people for doing. Uh, it was, they kept, they kept it as a all of us type thing with the media involved. Uh, we were invited to the player parties all over the world. Uh, I mean, I've been invited to uh, uh, Slim's dinners in Eastbourne, England, and uh, in France, in the United States, various places, wherever I've been. I've been invited and been like, say, part of that that whole history of coming together. 
That's why I remember the very that first Virginia Slims tournament that I went to, the second professional tennis tournament I covered. In fact, the second tournament, I, tennis tournament I covered. Um, as I said, Billie Jean King won it. And immediately afterwards, I was invited into the dressing room to speak to the winner, to interview the winner. Because at that time, one of the things that Billie Jean realized is she needed media. Not just her, but the whole women's tennis needed. And it was one of the things that made it what the, the Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka and that group are reaping the benefits of now, taking home the big paychecks because of the work that Billie Jean and Rosemary Casals and a, a number of other people did in those early days. It's uh, amazing to be next to someone who is a part of that history. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, it it's a history. You know, you don't even think about it until we're sitting here talking and I remember and I'm saying, yeah, I was there at the very beginning. Uh, I For years, I didn't even realize I was with a group called the Handsome Mate. The first tournament, men's tournament I covered, was called the Handsome Mate. And Like I said, it was something that came to town in, in Milwaukee, and I went and covered it, and that was it. But later on, I, I found out that this was like one of the first professional groups that came, and it was like at the beginning, and I was there. You didn't realize it at the time. At least I didn't, you know. It was only when I was around long enough to understand history about it that I realized who I was with at that time. Your family dates back to New Gloucester? Uh, yeah, well, a, a, my, a, a couple got married in New Gloucester in 1782, and I believe, I can't prove it, but they're the as somebody once said, the, the, the right people in the right place at the right time. Uh, and so I, I claim that they are my ancestors. And that would be my five-time great-grandparents. The next generation I can prove okay. is just connecting that couple in New Gloucester with people that were born in Gray and in Durham and in New Gloucester, <laughs> you know, with, with basically the same name. So you kind of figure they must be, and they were the, the only people listed as black or mulatto in, in that portion of the state at that particular time with those names. So. And the family has a, a cemetery in Durham? There, yes, we have uh, the Ruby family, uh, which is the ones we're talking about. Um, one of the this couple's sons, that's a couple of them, uh, had, a, had farms in Durham. And as they started dying around 1827, I think, 1828, uh, they created a, a family cemetery out back, so to speak, uh, behind the house. And 
So a number of people were buried there, and it still exists. Uh, fortunately, uh, a Boy Scout troop in the in the Durham area uh, cleaned it up and uh, made it quite presentable. I haven't been there in years now, but I was up there once and and had a chance to see it. And the Ruby section of your family, if I'm remembering correctly, um, were the founders of the Epsonian house? Well, Reuben Ruby, who I believe was this, one of the sons of this couple from New Gloucester. Reuben was born in Gray, uh, about 1793, I believe. And don't hold me on that. I don't have everything true. But he shows up in Portland, right? Well, it, he shows up in Portland. Or the first time we see him is 1812, when he gets married the first time. So, uh, so I guess 93 might be wrong, because that would make him only, he must have been born before that. But he gets married in, in 1812 in Portland. And he, uh, his wife, uh, they had one child, and the child died young, and so did the wife. And they're both buried in, in with stones in Eastern Cemetery in Portland. And they're right next to the Congress Street. <laughs> that colored ground that was in the back of those days is now up front. So... But Reuben then married again and had a lot of children with his second wife. He ma actually married for a third time after she died, after his second wife died. He married a third time. But they didn't have children. So, uh, but he had a lot of children with the, the second wife and was very instrumental in a lot of things. He was. He was Maine's top black abolitionist. And he was there when the anti-slavery part uh, conference or whatever you want to call it was formed in Maine. He uh, up in Howell. He was there. Reuben Ruby was there. He also traveled extensively to uh, New York and to Philadelphia and upstate New York too and was uh, generally uh, most of these conferences that he went to he was elected as one of the leaders either as uh, president or as vice president or or vice chair or regional chair so he was quite involved in, in all of this uh, and he gave property to a group of blacks in, in, in Portland to, so that they could build, give them a place to build the Abyssinia and Religious Society building. And Reuben gave them that and then was a big contributor in money. Uh, it's very interesting to see our people pledged uh, 25 cents and 50 cents and that that was 
once in a while you'd see somebody give five dollars, which was a lot of money. And Reuben gave a hundred dollars. So <laughs> yeah, he was the big shot, the big spender. And was Reuben making his money from farming or well, sailor? Reuben, when he first came to Portland, apparently was a waiter. Uh, it's interesting, actually, uh, looking at black men in those days. A lot of them uh, learned how to cook. And they made their, their living as waiters on land. And when they went to sea, they were called... Uh, stewards so some that were when they were in town they were a waiter they had the same job on board a ship but they were called stewards a little different or the other one is cook on both land and sea they made it and one of the things I found interesting is regardless of what they did uh, a lot of, of the black leaders of that day did cooking uh, my ancestor, Christopher Christian Emanuel, who married Reuben Ruby's sister, Sophia Ruby, uh, he was a barber and a well-known barber in Portland. He cut both black and white hair, like I, I assume others did too, but he was well-known with uh, the power brokers of Portland in the early 1800s. But one of the, every so often you would see where he catered at an event. So apparently he was involved in the food business to, you know, making money wherever you could. And it was a skill that uh, a lot of the, the, the people that you see that were leaders, the black leaders of that time, they had that skill. They knew their way around the kitchen or how to prepare meals. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad, when he was in the military, that was definitely one of his jobs. So um, it's important to feed people. There I... you go. There you go. <laughs> and it, it's like I had a son. My one, I had a number of sons, but one of them one time came to New York and I got him a job as a uh, cook in a restaurant. And as I explained to him, once you learn that job, no matter where you go, you'll have, you'll have a job waiting because they always are looking for short order cooks. Somebody that knows how to flip a hamburger <laughs> or, or, or grill a steak or whatever, they always are looking for that. So that's, that's a, and, and those black folks back there in the early 1800s knew that mm -hmm. and capitalized on it. And with the barber shop too, or doing those grooming, that was also very popular for a while. That was, still is, uh, to a degree. Um, one of the things though that you should not overlook when you're talking about that is cooks and barbers have one thing in common. They, work, they can work for themselves. And uh, William Ruby, William Wilberforce Ruby, one of the Reuben Ruby's sons, 
had his own restaurant here in Portland. And that was uh, a way to make a living and not have to depend on somebody else giving you a job. Have you ever had any shorthand or um, being any chef skills along the way? No, okay. I thought about it. I thought about waiting. Yeah. But uh, I was fortunate enough in that I came through with skills because I went to the University of Kansas, William Allen Schools of Journalism, and William Allen White School of Journalism. And so I was, I had the skills when uh, the white media started looking for black folks. And I was prepared and ready. So, and I, and I do have to, I understand that that was one of the things that got me where I was, is that I had already prepared, had the skills. So when they came knocking on my door, I could answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've worked in the journalism industry for more years than I've been alive. I'm 39. <laughs> so it, it's very impressive when I think about your body of work. I mean, just piles and piles of articles in front well, of you. It, you know, and most of them are very forgettable. <laughs> I the mean, ones yet, that aren't. <laughs> well, there are a few, but that's yeah. luck and, and almost anybody, if you're in a certain spot, that you get lucky. Or, if you want to call it luck. Uh, I mean, if you're in a I've been in places where they've had uh, floods. Now that's not luck, but I mean it's bad luck, I guess. But I was there and was and covered Mississippi uh, floods on the Mississippi River, in the uh, from Minneapolis all the way down to Iowa, which was I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So we did the I did the whole thing down on the Mississippi and was able to cover that. I've covered prison breaks. I've covered uh, a lot of a lot of stories of plane crashes simply because I was there. Uh, I also covered the uh, Democratic uh, National Convention in 1972 in Miami Beach. Martin Luther King's funeral, right? Oh, was that Martin yes. Luther King's funeral? Yes. I covered riots in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, but I've also written a lot of stories about one car accidents where people were killed or, and that type of thing. Uh, that's all part of the business. I've covered high school football, and basketball, and track, and I've covered colleges. Uh, University of Wisconsin and covered the Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City uh, Chiefs uh, covered uh, the Washington Redskins so I've been fortunate enough but I've also like I said like every other journalist just starting out I've done my share of high school sports and, and uh, little league and that whole thing so 
And how did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? In high school, I worked for uh, the school newspaper at Portland High School here and wrote little stories. Uh, I reviewed records, among other things, for the, for the, for the uh, Portland High School headlight, I believe it was called. Don't hold me on that. It's been a few years since I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great that you were able to figure out what you liked at really an early age. I mean, high school is like you're yeah. not even a young adult, technically. Yes, uh, I, I, I did start early. Uh, my freshman year in college, I went to Virginia State, which was a predominantly black school, and listed as Petersburg, Virginia. It's actually an Ettrick, Virginia, but that's another story. <laughs> but uh, I was there as a freshman when Brown versus Board of Ed uh, the Supreme Court handed down that decision. And that put me in Virginia at a very special time in this country's history. And so I was able to observe and listen. My uncle, the reason I went to Virginia State is that my dad's brother was a professor there. And his sister-in-law, who was living with us was a teacher in the local primary school. She was taught the fifth grade. And so at dinner table, the conversations about what the Supreme Court decision meant for the state of Virginia was discussed quite a bit. So I was very fortunate to be in on those discussions, or at least listen to them. Did you have any change while you were, besides being a part of those discussions, did school change for you as a... Not, not really. Uh, I was, <laughs> although I, I had come there after coming from Maine, I'd gone down south. It was not my first trip to the south. I'd been in Kansas City uh, when it was segregated. So that wasn't a complete shock. Although I rarely rode, I think I only rode the bus there once, a local bus in Petersburg, Virginia, once, and decided I'd walk everywhere else I went, unless my uncle let me use his car. But that was just the way I felt about that particular time. Where did you meet your wife? Well, <laughs> I uh, had just come out of college, and I had another one of my, my dad's siblings, his sister, his oldest sister, lived in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was in Kansas by now at the University of Kansas. My dad lived in Kansas City, and mom. They, had lived, they were living in Kansas City at that particular time. So I was out there with them. And my aunt, my dad's sister in Indianapolis, Indiana, her husband died. And my dad and I, uh, and another one of his brothers, drove up to the funeral. And I decided to stay there and eventually got a job with the, the 
Panther with the uh, Hoosier Herald, my first newspaper job there in Indianapolis. And it was during that period that I met my first wife at a party, by the way, that was taken from from a friend of mine from Portland took me to it. Okay, they you were know, visiting? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know Lynn Cummings? Leonard Cummings? Uh, He's not part well. of the Abyssinian. Uh, his, his family there. And Lenny and I were running mates in high school. And he didn't go, he stayed here to go to college, uh, junior college. There was no USM, uh, University of Southern Maine at that time. And I went off to college. And then Lenny, I don't know if he uh, enlisted or, or was uh, drafted, but Lynn was in the Army and by happenstance was stationed in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he knew I was there. So he got a hold and we began, uh, again, our friendship in Indianapolis. And he had heard about a party and took me to it. And it was there that I met my first wife. And you've been listening to In the Pocket with your host, Flo Edwards, and our guest, Bob Green. You are listening to WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio.